Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of the Thinking LSAT podcast. My name is Ben Olson and I am in Washington, D.C. And with me is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. Today we're going to answer some questions from two of our listeners. Ebony, who has been working with Nathan already on the show. I'm assuming many of you have probably heard that, uh, and if not, but you'll hear a question from her today, and then Matt. And the questions include uh, at least the following five. One, what kind of score improvement can most students expect to see? A very common question that we get. Two, can you improve your reading comp score? Three, if I'm getting the first 16 questions in logical reasoning all correct, is it going to be difficult to improve my score in that section? Question four, do I have to get at least 170 to get into the schools I want or money at others? And question five, is there an LSAT study schedule that you find more effective than others? So those are the questions we're going to try to tackle today as much as we can. But before we get started, Nathan, do you have anything that you'd like to share with our listeners or... No, sounds great. I'm uh, enjoying a nice little break after the September LSAT was over. Um, you know, we could talk, Ben, just really briefly. What did you think about the September, or what have you been hearing about the September test? Uh, almost universally, it sounds like it was easier than the previous test, the June test. Uh, everyone in my class took the June 2014 test right b- the week before, so they they knew what was that was yeah. like, and a lot of people said, "Well, we don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen, but it felt easier than that test." So hopefully, it is. Yeah, I think it was easier as well, based on you know anecdotal evidence. But I had quite a few students say um, that they finished the logic games, and that's usually where how I gauge the difficulty of a test is just simply um, you know were the games manageable or not. And this test sounds like there was one sequencing game and three really basic grouping games, um, like five variables per game. Um, Just put five things into two groups or put five things in order. I mean, that almost sounds ridiculously easy to me. So uh, if you're wondering how you did on this last test, I'm gonna throw it out there that uh, if you made it through those games or if you did better than usual on the games, then you probably did all right. But like, if you thought those games were hard, um, it was probably not your best day. Yeah. That's interesting. So three ordering games. I hadn't heard that. That sounds no, a lot like... three grouping games. One sequencing. Oh, three grouping games. Oh, okay. Okay. And yeah. I believe the first game sequencing had seven questions. So it's just like, here's seven free points in a really easy sequencing game. And then yeah. I think the grouping games were all really pretty manageable too. I had I had several students. We were having a beer after the test, and I had several students just kind of shaking their heads like, "Man, I can't believe how easy that was." Wow. Yeah, and you don't hear a lot of that. You know, I heard I I also heard quite a few people panicking and saying that it was impossible, and oh boy, those logic games were particularly evil this time around. And it's just like you know, I hear that every time, and um, mm-hmm. it's just not true. So yeah. That's too bad, but uh, those folks, I think, are going to be in the retake camp. So one thing I did hear, I think, from two people was that the substitution question in the games was worded particularly strangely, Mm -hmm. which I think just emphasizes the point again that it's a question that you should probably skip unless you know you're going to finish the games. 
Yeah, or if you just know that for whatever reason you're you're like freakishly good at those questions. I mean, some people, some kids really get it, and some people really don't. So I would just say, if you're one of those ones that really doesn't, you shouldn't really try <laughs> to to get better at that one question. At least not until you're able to finish all the rest of the questions in the section. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Should we knock out these uh, questions from our listeners? Thanks, by the way, to our listeners for sending in questions. Um, you can email me, at Nathan at foxlsat.com, and Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. We love getting questions and feedback from the readers. Uh, you can also leave comments on our blog, which is thinkinglsat.com. But uh, yeah, let's knock these out. Question one, yeah. what kind of score improvement can most students expect to see? What do you think? Yes. Well, um, <clears throat> really quick, let me give you some context. This is from Matt. Okay. And he said that, uh, I know it must be different for everyone, but I was wondering what the typical improvement trajectory is for prep test scores. And then he tells us his scores. He says that he improved dramatically over the first couple of tests. He went from a 153 to a 157 and then to a 163 but then he sort of has plateaued around 160. His most recent test was a 160 with minus five and minus four in the two logical reasoning sections, so minus nine total for, the, for logical reasoning, minus 10 in reading, and minus four in the games. But he says that his games, he got three wrong in the first game, which he doesn't really think he should have gotten wrong because it was a very easy game. That's not surprising. So he's pretty sure he can get this down to a perfect score on the games. And that's all he's really been studying so far. He hasn't really looked at logical reasoning or reading comp. And he's just kind of curious as to what he can expect, I guess, score-wise going forward. So, um, I would want to know why he's been only studying games and nothing else. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I actually start my classes focusing primarily on the games because they're something that take people a while to sort of get their minds wrapped around. Uh -huh. But yeah, um, I don't know how long has he been studying. He emailed us earlier. I can't remember. But I, I wouldn't be too surprised, I guess, since games at least is also the section that's the easiest to learn. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I emphasize the games in my classes, but I just, I, I get confused when people say that they've really only been studying one section. Um, you know, games is important, and yeah, games is the biggest place where you can improve, but games is not the biggest place um, where, you, it's Matt, right, where Matt can improve. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> Matt, well, Matt has three <clears throat> other sections which are, are definitely his now his weak Games is by far his strength, and it's only one quarter of the test. So yeah. I would I would for sure give him the the nudge in the direction of uh, working on the other sections of the test kind of quickly here. Yeah, I should clarify. He did say he's only been seriously studying the game, so he sounds like he might have been looking at the others. But definitely, I I would agree. This is uh, maybe it made sense. Maybe that's why his games are where they're at now. Right, but it's right. definitely time to shift focus. And that is a I, I should. It's an excellent point that you raised because a lot of people, they, they struggle so much with the games at first that they put a lot of time into it and then somehow never get off of that path. Not saying that's necessarily Matt's case. but um, And the other thing too is if you get 
minus six in the games, or minus four is in his case, and then you get minus four and minus five in logical reasoning, as he points out, you're actually getting minus nine, and and so you're losing a lot more points in logical reasoning just because there are two sections. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thoughts on where he can go from here? Um, it it depends. I mean, we say that a lot, don't we? That yeah. that it depends, <laughs> but. Um, he, he has gotten already kind of a big boost from his initial studying. So there are some students where kind of the, the biggest improvement that they're ever going to make is going to happen in the first two weeks. Um, I see that a lot, especially with my private tutoring students. I'll work with somebody for one week and they'll just like immediately jump up, you know, some huge amount of points. And it's like, well, sorry to tell you this, but that's kind of like the, that, that's probably going to be the biggest jump that you're ever going to have. Um, from that point forward, I would be looking for more kind of incremental improvement, uh, one question per test, you know, with logical reasoning and with reading comprehension, it seems to be like, um, grind it out, do put in the time, do tons and tons of questions, make some mistakes, learn from those mistakes. And the goal is like to get one more question correct per test. So the improvement does, I think, tend to be a little more gradual on those sections than on the other sections. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's almost like that initial jump is you start studying and you figure out how to play the game, so to speak, of the test, and your natural ability comes to its more fuller potential and then from that point forward you have to kind of push that ability up through drilling and practicing yeah and seeking out the details that weren't obvious or harder for you to grasp right away yeah i i have no idea what what matt's limit would be um what did you say he was missing on the reading comprehension minus 10 minus 10 on the reading comprehension yeah i mean um people do get limited on the reading comprehension people people find a spot where they can't go any higher on the reading comprehension. Mm -hmm. um, so with Matt, I would be, it, it just depends. Like if he's getting minus 10, he, his goal right now should be three perfect passages. Do you agree with that? Yeah, he should get those first and then definitely. Right. So then the question is just like, I, I would be thinking more in terms of like manageable short-term or intermediate-term goals, then I would be thinking about what's my total long-term improvement mm -hmm. potential, because who knows really what your total long-term improvement potential is. So I'd be saying, um, well, let's think about what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks. And in the next couple of weeks, I think Matt should be going for three perfect passages. If he can do that, that'll get him to like, he should be like minus six or something like that on the reading mm -hmm. comprehension. Yes. If he can do that, then I would encourage him, well, let's see if we can get to that fourth passage. But uh, the only way to really get there is to get there through accuracy. So he, he just needs to be making sure that he's getting the questions right that he attempts. That would be my advice. That's great. I mean, that that's kind of answering question two, which is he says here, uh, the most troubling was the reading comprehension, which is where he got the most wrong. Mostly because I keep hearing that it can't be improved, or at the very best, it's difficult to make significant improvements. And he does say here that he got, he only got through three and the first two of the fourth passage, and he got two wrong in each of the other passages. So yeah. he really needs to start getting those 
right before yeah. getting even to the fourth passage. Yeah, I mean, so what a typical student there, they'll be complaining about like, yeah, I just can't do it in time. It's time is, you know, the time is really holding me back. And boy, if I could only have finished that fourth passage. But the truth is he's missing already a full passage worth of questions in the first three passages. Mm-hmm. So like missing two questions per passage is not okay. In fact, missing two questions per passage is not even good. It's mm-hmm. it's like it's kind of shitty to be honest. Um, not not to like you know be criticizing Matt or anything, but constructive criticism. Matt needs to slow down and he needs to stop making those mistakes on the earlier questions. Mm-hmm. Because if if he if he would just do three passages except get them all right, he would already be looking at a significant improvement in his score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if he can learn to do that, he's going to naturally also go faster because the test is going to start to seem easier to him. He's going to spend way less time comparing the answer choices to one another. Um, it's amazing what happens if you just focus on accuracy. You focus on accuracy, and then all of a sudden your speed gets way better. Yeah. Um, there's one thing that he says here. He says, I keep hearing that it, that the reading comp score can't be improved, and... I would have to push back against that a little bit. He says, or at the very best, it's difficult to make significant improvements. I do think people can improve actually significantly in reading comp. I think, though, that a lot of people just don't put in time. They don't sit down and do full section after full section after full section of reading comp passages. They'll do that for the games because they know that they're hard, but that you can improve. But I don't think that people know that as much about reading comp. And so they don't put in the time. And then it's just not, to me, very surprising that they don't see as much progress in a section that they haven't spent as much time on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, the LSAT in a lot of ways is a test of how hard you can work. Um, There are 70-something released practice tests, and there's nothing stopping you except for just, you know, your willingness to work hard. Um, Nothing stopping you from, like, doing all of them or doing a significant number of those practice tests. And absolutely, on the reading comprehension, if you just do a lot of them, you're going to realize that, well, they're all basically the same. The questions are always basically the same. Um, you kind of get tuned in to the makers of the test. You know, you, you get you get like it's it's strange, but you just sort of like get on the same page as the makers of the test, mm-hmm. and you'll find yourself, I think, even kind of predicting what some of the questions are going to be while you're reading the passage. You'll read some funny line, and you'll go, "Oh, you know, they're going to ask me. They're going to ask me something about that. I better make sure I understand this because they're going to ask me about that." Yeah, that was worded in a weird way. And sure enough, they do. Yeah, ask you about it. Yeah, excellent. Um, I, I I think people can improve on the reading comprehension. I just think that what most people teach on the reading comprehension is the wrong stuff. So, um, the I guess the biggest gains that I've had recently with students, especially with um, private students, is getting them to ignore all of the bogus strategies that they've learned elsewhere on the reading comprehension. Okay. Um, like people underline so much stuff that you can't even tell what they're trying to highlight. They just like yes. underline everything in the entire passage. And I have talked a few people out of that recently and they've they've improved quite a bit on their reading comprehension just because they're not 
you know, making an art project out of their reading comprehension passage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> um, same thing with uh, people. People have some bad, some bad strategies. You know, people like to read the questions first before they read the passage. I, I think that really prevents you from understanding the passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the biggest problem is just that people don't read the passage carefully enough. You know, they read the first sentence or two, and then they go, "Oh man, what is this about? Oh, I can't understand this." Well, I better hurry up and get done with the passage so that I can answer the questions. And they just like keep reading even though they don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the one thing that they really have to break themselves of. No, I, I completely agree. I uh <clears throat> for the longest time I actually did nothing when it came to underlying. More recently I, I, I still don't underline pretty much anything except for kind of the what you were talking about earlier, those terms that stick out, they seem to be an odd term that the passage is talking about, I might underline that term just because I'm suspecting that it will be asked about and it makes me focus on it all the more in that moment. The other thing I might just flag, I don't really underline it, but whenever I read a sentence and I predict that that's the main point, I might write MP right next to the passage. Just that's it. That's all I'm writing. Just as my prediction. And then sometimes I'll be going through the passage and then later I'll say, oh, no, no, this is the main point right here. And I'll go back and erase that. But it keeps me a little more, I guess, engaged and forces me to think specifically what what am I identifying or what area of the passage am I identifying as the main point. The one other thing I might take note of, and again, this is just a little star next to the side of the passage, is when the author starts quoting someone else or the author starts clearly injecting his or her opinion. So sometimes the author is just telling us facts and they don't really seem to have an opinion about them one way or the other. But then when the author says something like, but this is not the best approach for yada, 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 not only does that sound like it might be a main point, but even if it's not, it's still where the author is clearly revealing his or her tone and most likely will be, you know, will be asked about that. Yeah. If the underlining or if writing a little asterisk or a little MP or whatever, if that helps you to remember that you need to stay tuned in to the author's main point, then that's great. Um, But I just, I have to keep telling students, you know, you don't get any points for underlining the main point. You get points for identifying the main point and then using that when you answer the questions. So, um, you know, I I get, I get a little worried because I see students underline something and then they go, well, that's the main point. And then, but it turns out that that's not at all the main point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, you know, then the underlining didn't help you at all. And in fact, might've hurt you if it, if it like made you commit to, the main point being one one thing that I think maybe people don't quite grasp is that the main point doesn't have to be like one sentence in the in the passage. Yes, and I, actually, I just wanted to say something about that. That's part of the reason I write it to the side because I kind of feel like, oh, this is where the ideas seem to be stated, but it's more like those two or three sentences together seem to be what this passage is about. And it, it may be the whole thing you have to look at, but again, it's kind of a general area, I guess, that I'm looking at. Okay, yeah. I don't know if that's what, 
I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry, but no, I just I just mean that you know the main point is if if someone took your test away from you and said, uh, hey, you have to tell your mom what this passage was basically about in one sentence, mm-hmm. um, you would come up with some sort of a sentence that would say, well, it was basically about X Y Z, and the author thinks this, mm-hmm. and that that sentence is probably not anywhere in the passage. Yes. Yes. Your summary of the passage is the main point. <laughs> I mean, and it's and it doesn't have to be one one line. So I think people kind of go astray when they're like, well, here's the main point and here's the author's attitude and here's the tone. It's like, no, no. The the attitude and the tone of the passage, that's like the totality of the passage. It's the whole thing. Did you get it or not? Mhm. Yeah. And and I like you can't just go hunting for I think if you're hunting for the line where it says the author's main point, I think you're doing the wrong thing. I think you need to just be reading the passage, engaging with the author, and kind of get the, the big picture is the main point. Now, one thing I, I would like to clarify, and I, when you say summary, there, I think people could interpret that in different ways because sometimes I'll ask people what the main point of the passage is, and they will start summarizing the passage in basically rehashing kind of what was said without really grasping, okay, so what's the takeaway or what's this author trying to convince us of? So when you say summary, you're meaning more narrowly the, the sum I guess the summary of the main point as opposed to just sort of a, a rehashing of all the different parts of the passage. The trick that I use in my books and in all of my classes is ask the author, why are you wasting my time with this? Whatever the author would say back to you is the main point of the passage. Yep. Why, it's like, dude, why are you doing this to me? Why are you wasting my time with this? Oh, well, I just wanted to tell you basically X, Y, Z. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the main point. Mm-hmm. People do confuse topic with main point. I mean, people will be like, well, it was about poets. Okay, I mean, sure, it was about poets, but the author came here to tell you more than just like tell you a bunch of random stuff about poets. Mm-hmm. right? The author wanted to tell you that one particular poet was influential because of something. Um, so it, it is, again, it's just as you're reading, ask the author, why are you wasting my time with this? What's your point? What's the main point? What am I supposed to take away from this? And, yep. and that's the main point of the passage. That makes sense. So uh, for logical reasoning, question three, he, he ends up getting... He says that he got the first 15 questions correct in both sections, which is that's good news and the ones we'd hope that he'd be getting correct. He's curious, though, since he got all of those correct and the rest, uh, well, I guess he got five and four wrong in the remaining 10 questions. Uh, is, his, is it going to be difficult for him to improve his score in logical reasoning, given the fact that he's probably not going to be improving in the first 10 or so? Because he's getting all the easy ones right already. So he's worried now that he's not going to be able to improve. Yep, exactly. Yeah. What do you say to that? Uh, I would say no, he definitely still can't improve. In fact, it sounds to me like he has a good intuitive understanding of logical reasoning. 
And so given the fact that he hasn't done much to study it, I'm assuming that once he starts focusing on the different question types, uh, he should be able to pick up more points. Minus four, minus five, it is getting harder, but I'm curious... Uh, you know, if he was down to minus one, minus two, I might say, well, there's always a couple on the test that are just unique to the test and probably hard to learn any overarching strategies. But given how little he's done on it so far, I would be confident that he can get that down to minus one or minus two. What do you think? Um, I would say the best candidates for improvement are the people who can string together long strings of correct answers, particularly at the beginning of the section. Um, because he clearly is getting the foundation of the test. You, you just don't get 16 in a row right by accident. So if he did that in both sections of his recent practice test, then I would, I would say sky's the limit for somebody who can do that. And in fact, I really emphasize that with all of my students is that you know if you want to get better at this test, the way you need to get better is you need to start getting 10 out of 10 right at the beginning of the section. Because if you're not doing that, then it either indicates that you're going too fast, not being careful enough, or that there are fundamental things about the test that you don't understand that you could learn. So with Matt, if he's getting these long strings of correct answers at the beginning of the section, I would say, dude, awesome. It's, it's almost inevitable that you will continue to improve because you clearly understand the test. So now it's just a matter of you need to keep practicing a lot. Yeah, I um, agree. I, I, I just, I love it. I, give, me, give me the student who, if he only had, let, let's say he had only made it through 16 questions, but he got them all right. I would way prefer that student over someone who finished the section and got 20 of them right. I think hmm. that, I think that the, the first student, the one who, who, went through them carefully enough and got them all right, I think that that person is a much better candidate for improvement. Because if they continue on the path that they're on, I think day by day they're going to start getting to one more question and they're going to get them right because they've, get, they've been getting all the questions right. So they're going to keep doing that because they understand it. And now when they miss a question, they're going to review it and they're going to figure it out and they're going to go, oh, I see, okay, I know. I, I see what I did wrong there. I won't do that again next time. Yeah. So long chains of correct answers just sort of breed longer chains of correct answers. Mm-hmm. So anyways, I, I love what I'm hearing there. Yeah, no, it's great. And so the, the message to those who are getting 20 in, in uh, 35 minutes would be to slow down and try to get to that point where you're getting the first 15 or 16 correct. And I think so. I up. mean, if you're getting 20 out of 25... Um, then, you know, that's great. I'm not saying that's bad. But 20 out of the first 25, um, you could just get the first 20 in a row right and then randomly guess on the last five, and you'll probably get one of those right. Mm -hmm. So even those people could probably improve just by slowing down a little bit. Yeah. So his last, it was last comment. It wasn't really a question, but uh, I'm kind of turning it into a question here. He says, uh, I'm getting a little, I'm getting in a bit of a panic mode because I have faced the harsh reality that I need to get at least a 170 to get into the schools I want to or money to others. 
and he, I don't think that we know, he doesn't mention here what schools he wants to get into, but do you have any reactions to that reality that he is facing? Well, I mean, if, if his schools are Harvard, Stanford, and Yale, then I would say, okay, I guess you do need to get over a 170. Although mm-hmm. I have students in at all of those schools with less than a 170. So even maybe then I would say, I'm not sure that your analysis is correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would have to agree with that. Uh, someone I was just talking to a few months ago, they got a 169 and got into both Harvard and Yale. And I, I don't know what his GPA was, but I don't think he had necessarily saved a, a third world country. So yeah. I'm not sure, you know, that it was too out of the ordinary for him to, to get in. It may just be kind of the, the climate that we're in too. Yeah. And I mean, people who think they need a 170 to get a scholarship, that I definitely don't agree with. Because I mean, I have students with 155s who are getting full rides at regional schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, again, it does depend on your GPA, but if your LSAT score is above the 75th percentile at a school, you are going to be a good candidate for scholarship money, or you should be a good candidate. You should hold out for scholarship money, I think. Mm -hmm. And getting over the 75th percentile at a lot of schools is easier than a lot of people think. I mean, if you look at a school that's ranked, like, say, ranked 20th in the country, they almost always are going to have a 50th percentile and a 75th percentile LSAT score that are within like a really small a number of points, like four points. Yeah. So a school will be like, oh yeah, median 163, 75th percentile 166. I mean, you mm-hmm. see that all the time. Yeah. So it's like with a 163, you could get in, but with a 167, you would pretty much, you really, I would, in my book, you would deserve to get scholarship money from that school. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it sounds like Matt's probably doing the thing that most students do, which is just sort of buy into a lot of the hype, you know, you get, get yourself in trouble by reading the law school forums and whatnot, because there's a lot of people out there who are just kind of spreading bad information and the hierarchical kind of bullshit starts really early for for these folks and so it, it's just a little bit unfortunate when people decide in advance that like well i only am going to go to a top 10 school and i'm only going to go if i get over 170 it's like okay i mean yeah that's the prevailing opinion on the internet but the prevailing opinion on the internet's almost always wrong yeah yeah, it's interesting. I like to ask my students sometimes, what's the lowest score that you'd be happy with? And a lot of people say, well, uh, I guess a 170. And I say, well, what about a 169? <laughs> and all of a sudden, that's just not good. And you know, the reality is, I think it's just kind of like how 99 cents sounds <laughs> way cheaper than a dollar. But it's not it's really the same amount different. of money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, there, there, there is just, there's so much of that hierarchy nonsense out there. Um, but what people need to understand is that, you know, unless you have a 180 and a 4.0 and go to Harvard, Stanford, or Yale, there are always going to be people who are looking down at you. 
and you have to decide how much of that you're going to like buy into and how, how, how much of that you're going to actually take on. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was at Hastings, I might've said this before on the show, but I'll just repeat my jokes. Um, on when I was at Hastings, there was a study group. I'll never forget it. In my one L year, there was a study group where, um, to be part of the study group, you had to have a 167 or higher on the LSAT. <laughs> I don't remember you saying that at all. That's hilarious. Yeah. And no I one just, even talks about their LSAT score after you get in. I know. I, I just remember. Not. <laughs> I remember just laughing and being like, I, I just can't believe how these people what these people are doing to themselves and what they're doing to the, all the other people around them, you know? And it's like, okay, well, which one of you is the one with the 167 who decided that that was going to be the cutoff? Oh my gosh. You know, or who, who's the person that's a 166 that you did not want to be in your study group. So you arbitrarily set the 167 mark. I don't know. It's just, it's just stupid. Um, that is so funny. I bet whoever started the study group probably had a 167. It's kind of like the top 14 law schools. Whoever was 14 at the time said, oh, this is the, this is the dividing line. Yeah. I, I mean, all of these arbitrary cutoffs just don't make any sense. It's like the arbitrary cutoffs for the U.S. News um, tiers, you know, tier two, tier three, whatever, mm-hmm. where the 50th school is in tier two, but the 51st school is in tier three. And then you get people saying like, "Well, I would never go to a tier three school," mm-hmm. and and meanwhile they're going to like the lowest ranked tier two school, and it's what what difference does it make? Yeah. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of students just kind of don't know the reality of what it's like to actually be a lawyer. Uh, they haven't really thought about it that much. They they either don't know what lawyers do, or they they watch TV, you know, and they have like some idea of what life in law is going to be like. Mm-hmm. And I think the only people who really believe all that are the people who haven't been to law school. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So the last question is from Ebony and, um, it says, is there any schedule that you find more effective than others or less effective? She also adds that she's just her schedule has just lightened up a little bit and now she can do two hours a day and she has nearly unlimited time on the weekends. So any any advice for her there? Um, I've worked with enough students to know that it's really different for everybody. So again, I guess I would just say it depends. The one thing that I consistently say to just about every student is that I would like them to do a little bit every day if possible. Um, you know, maybe there's some some days where you're going to a wedding or you're flying across country. Well, actually flying across country is probably a perfect time to do a little bit of LSAT studying. Um, there are some days when you will not be able to study. Mm-hmm. But I think it's far more important that people do a little bit every day than it is that they do 10 hours on a Saturday. Yeah. So, I agree. I mean, if a study schedule would help Ebony, it'd be really easy to just pencil something out. But my, my, my two primary concerns I think would be that she have a regular practice it's like getting, you know, it's like fitness or whatever. It's just like, well, you just have to start doing it every day. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is just to be really careful about 
burning out because I think people a lot of times people just do too much yes for sure especially if your score starts to go down that's a good indication to stop for a day or two and just do no LSAT which is hard for some people but I will tell those people look if you really feel like you have to do something LSAT related do something else in your life that's on your to-do list so that when you go back to studying, you have one less item to worry about. So you can think of yourself as doing that for your LSAT study, even though it's not LSAT. Yeah, that's a that's a great um, a great point. So I guess something like that would be, um, you know, you got this thing on this book on your desk that you've been meaning to deliver to somebody or whatever, and you you just haven't done it because you've been studying, and but you keep glancing at it, and it's like always there and you you Mm -hmm. keep it's like it is using up like a certain percentage of your well physical desk space but it's also using up a certain percentage of your cognitive capacity because you keep thinking about it Mm -hmm. and so maybe some days you don't quite have the gas in the tank to do LSAT stuff or maybe some days because your scores have been dipping down you're feeling discouraged about it and maybe really it would be best for you to just not even work on the LSAT when you're feeling so discouraged about it Mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. Taking care of business, little little to do items, and just check those off. It can feel really good, and it can be really, um, I think, motivating. Yeah. Well, I um, you raise an interesting point about the attention when you keep looking up at the book and thinking, "Oh, I got to do that," but I can't do it right now. Uh, Tim Ferriss talks about this, and one of the reasons he doesn't check email, I think on his mobile device I might be going too far but he's like if you're going to check email but not be in a position to respond to it you've now if let's say you don't respond to it you can't respond to it for another eight hours because you're studying for the LSAT or doing something else you've now just put that thought into your head and it's going to pop up into your head several times over the next eight hours and you've just consumed that time whereas if you had no idea that that idea or that email existed you wouldn't waste your brain power and and time really thinking about it even though you're not addressing it until later yeah and i think that that's where tim ferris is getting all of that is actually coming from um the productivity guru david allen um oh, okay who mm-hmm. wrote the book getting things done mm-hmm I've been meaning to talk about productivity uh, on the show. I do talk about this to my students in my classes, so this is a good time. We have a few minutes, I think, um, to talk about it. But Getting Things Done is a really uh, interesting book, and I, I would really recommend it for students. But the one thing that I've taken away from Getting Things Done is now like this sort of whole phenomenon. There's you know a blog and all these people who are like really like into it. It's like almost like a religion, you know, so I, I don't want to get too crazy about it. But um, And I don't do most of the stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm not the most productive person in the world. But um, one thing that I do do that's a getting things done technique, and I think you do it too, Ben, is uh, Inbox Zero. Yes, yes. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about Inbox Zero? Well, it's funny that you mentioned it because I actually, with with all the craziness leading up to the last LSAT, I was so busy that I let my inbox just spiral out of control. 
Oops. And one day, yeah, it was horrible because, again, I had all this brain drain because every time I went in there, I was like, all right, well, which one do I have to respond to now? And so then I was keeping, I kept making that judgment and assessment every time I yep. looked at my inbox, which was just itself time consuming. Like, yep. oh, I don't need to respond to this, but I've looked at that email like 30 times because I've decided that it's a lower priority. Yep. Sorry, sorry to anyone who I didn't respond to quickly. But, um, <laughs> I uh, then I I just had this like this I kind of knew that I needed to get back to inbox zero I had never put it in that term but I I just said okay it doesn't matter the priority I'm just gonna start right here at the top and I'm just gonna start getting them out of here and and the the <laughs> I, I came up with this phrase afterwards but I said either I'm gonna deal with it I'm gonna delete it or I'm gonna date it and by date it I mean uh put it in my account, delete the email, but put whatever I need to do about that email some time in the future in my calendar so right. that my inbox is no longer my to-do list. Right. Well, that's exactly that's exactly really what the getting things done philosophy or the, the inbox zero philosophy is all about. So just to back up and kind of um, summarize it for listeners who haven't heard of it before, um, my inbox always has zero emails in it. And well, it doesn't always have zero emails in it, but my goal is always to, if I'm going to look at my email, my goal is to process my inbox down to zero. The inbox is an inbox. The inbox is a, here are incoming messages. What are you going to do about these in, incoming messages? And um, the the idea is that if it takes, I think it's three minutes or less, but I'm not really strict about it. Um, if it takes three minutes or less, then you act on that item immediately and then get the email out of your inbox. If it's going to take more than three minutes, then as you said, Ben, you're going to put a, put it on your calendar, put it on your to-do list, put it on whatever other, um, you know, whatever mode of capturing action tasks you have, you're going to put it there instead of leaving it in your inbox. If it's something that you don't want to respond to, if it's some newsletter that you don't want to read, any kind of spam or junk or whatever, you just immediately delete it. And that way, when you're done processing your email, your inbox is now down to zero. That way, next time you check your email, if you get something really important, you'll see it, first of all. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't get anything important, you'll stop glancing at that <laughs> item that's just sitting there that like you don't want to do it right now, but it's going to take up a little bit of brain power because you're going to read, you're going to see the headline of the email, you're going to remember, oh yeah, I have to do X, Y, Z, oh, but I'm not going to do it right now. Mm. Well, then, okay, good. Stop like polluting your brain with that little nagging thing either do it or put it on your calendar but don't leave it in your inbox yeah excellent now uh sorry i was taking a little while to get there and i'm glad you you uh you summarized that but that this is this is the exciting part of the story nathan is i was eliminating all my emails and i was realizing that this is this is really good and this is what i i need to get back to and then i don't know but in the process of doing that that's when you emailed me and i have no idea why we had this conversation but you're like oh, 
well, I liked you. I said, oh, you respond so quickly or something like that. And you're like, yeah, I like to keep my inbox zero. And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so then the whole, like, it all came together at the right time. But it's a perfect way to phrase it. Um, and it's so, I mean, I, now, now I keep it at zero because I don't want to get back into that situation. But it's so refreshing to, to refresh my email box and be like, oh, there's nothing here. I don't have yeah, to. and I mean it. It does have. I mean, I don't want to like overstate it, but it does have. Um, it, it makes it. It makes it seem as if you're doing magic to other people. Other people are like, "Wow, I can't believe how quickly you got back to me." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like, well, right. The reason why I got back to you so quickly is that, I mean, I was either gonna get back to you right then, or I was never gonna get back to you at all. And I've made the decision that I'm going to get back to people. Um, you know, it's just the, it's just I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be thinking about how I need to get back to you for a week. I'm I'm gonna either do it or I'm not gonna do it. Um, the one there is there is a couple of additional tweaks to this inbox zero thing that some people do, and I know Tim Ferriss does it. It's in the book. David Allen definitely recommends it. Is to um, to also check your email far less frequently. Oh, yeah, and this is what I was just going to say next, because it almost sounds like we're saying, oh, just always stay on top of your email in the sense no, that you're frequently yeah. checking. You don't want to do that either, because now you're totally breaking up your productivity time, which for the LSAT, you know, you want to sit down and not be distracted for as long as you know, you're working on something. Yeah, I mean, so studying for the LSAT is a perfect example. Um, I've seen plenty of students checking their email in the middle of, you know, while they're supposed to be working on the LSAT. I see people checking their email in class all the time. And I'm not saying I'm offended or I, I'm not I'm not saying even necessarily that don't do that because there might be some times when you do want to do that. But as a habit, if you're continually checking your email, that is a very unproductive behavior Um, because all you're going to do is see the incoming messages and then you're not going to have time to act on them right away. Mm -hmm. So then you're going to just, you'll, you'll be doing exactly the thing, which I don't want you to do, which is to just like keep stuff in the inbox and keep having these nagging reminders all the time. Yeah. Because it kind of, it bleeds away your ability to, to, to deal with whatever task you're supposed to be dealing with. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you a little bit, though. You said that they don't check it as frequently. And I were you going to say something else there about how frequently they check? Um, some people get like completely nuts about it. I mean, Tim Ferriss does seem to like go a little bit extreme <laughs> on a lot yeah, of one, stuff. And once a week, a Monday morning or something like that. Yeah, like he has an automatic email responder that says, you know, I only check my email Monday morning or something, and mm-hmm. so if you if you need me urgently, get to me these other ways. Otherwise, I'll just churn through all of my email on Monday morning. Um, that's fine. I personally, I like I like email, so I I mean I I find it to be very useful. I guess I'm a writer, so I like I just it's a good medium for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I still though I like I wish I didn't check email nearly as often as I do. Um, I I should try to do it like maybe. A few times a day or something instead of kind of habitually just checking it over and over and over yeah i don't know how many times i check it but i do make sure it's deliberate so if it's you know oh okay i am now turning my focus to email on purpose to clear it out then you know 
I don't have a problem with that. As opposed to a, you know, an accidental response to <laughs> your smartphone. Oh, I must look at it. Uh, that that's a problem. Yeah, um, the smartphone thing. Just to go on another semi-related topic, I did I did do one electronic thing, which I I'm very happy I did. Um, I turned off all of the sound notifications, including vibration, for my text messages. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I love text, and you absolutely can text me, um, but I'm not going to get a notification of your text message until I look at my phone. When I look at my phone, then I'll see I have text messages. Mm-hmm. And that actually was a... Um, it was like a really breath of fresh air for me because I was getting so many text messages that, you know, I was having the, the, the buzzing in my pocket, like constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, it, I, even to the point where I started to get like phantom buzzes where I would think that my, <laughs> f- <laughs> yeah. I would think that someone had texted me even though they hadn't. And that that's, that was a pretty sure sign that, um, I was doing bad things to my brain. <laughs> um, so Having having um, shut off all of those notifications, it's actually great because now people can text me at one in the morning and it doesn't matter because it's not going to ring. Um, so I don't have to worry about that. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm more productive because I don't have those constant like pings. Yeah, uh, no, it makes perfect sense. So there was there were two things I wanted to mention when we were actually back on Ebony's question. So I don't mean to go back full circle, but there was, let's see here, she said, you know, there's a study schedule and she talks about she can do two hours a day and she has unlimited time on the weekends. And I, I do hear people a lot telling me or asking me how many hours should I spend studying a day? Yep, yep very common. Yep. And I, I kind of I kind of have the same answer I think that you had, which is sort of, well, it depends on how much time you have, how much you can put in and so on. But one thing I like to do is I kind of steer away from hours and I do this even with myself like I don't ever really set how much time I'm going to work I more set concrete goals in terms of like tasks so for the LSAT I would I kind of tend to tell people in class I tell people for example to do seven questions from your encyclopedia but what's the exact name of of your book again sorry the Fox LSAT logical reasoning encyclopedia Fox LSAT Logical Reasoning Encyclopedia. Yeah, so I um I always just call it the Fox Book, and everyone refers to it as the Fox Book. But I say do seven Fox questions a day and master two games, which means to do them over and over again until you can do them in five to seven minutes. And and the reason I tell them that is I say I want you guys to wake up every morning and know exactly what you have to do today. So there's no like, hmm. You know, am I, should I do this or should I do that? Because I feel like a lot of lack of studying takes place when people are just kind of not 100% sure about what they have to do. So then they kind of sit down and maybe they don't even sit down. Other things get in the way. But it's like, it's a clear assessment of whether or not you did something that day. Now, like you said, some days nothing's going to happen because you can't. But I like to keep really small, concrete goals every day and so that's one that at least the class starts with it changes over time but that's what I tell them to do at first yeah I I like that a lot I mean and maybe they might do more than those seven questions right the point is get started 
yeah, do a little manageable bite, you know, achievable goals. And then who knows, maybe you'll, you won't be totally hating it and you'll actually feel like doing a little bit more and that would be great. Yeah. If they, if they can do, and some people do, you know, they say, Oh, I did 28 or, you know, four times as much as whatever. Awesome. Like the sooner you finish that book, the sooner you're going to have your mind assuming, you know, they go through it methodically and take everything out of it and not just <laughs> skim. Through did I get it, it right or did I get it wrong? Yeah. yeah, exactly. But as long as they're, you know, really engaged with it, the sooner they finish it, the sooner they're going to have their minds wrapped around the different question types. And I think that's, that's great. But at a bare minimum, at least did you do seven today? And like you said, if you start something, once people have started into it, this happens to me all the time. I'll have like projects. I'll be like, oh, I have to write this thing or I have to do that. And I just put it off, put it off, put it off. And then finally I start writing it. I'm like, this actually isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah. It only takes that, it doesn't take that long. Well, that's a classic procrastination uh, problem is that you overestimate the pain of a task or you overestimate how much time the task is going to take. So then you just put it off forever. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do that all the time. I, once I get, Really the hardest thing is just to get started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, anything else we need to talk about today? Uh, no, that's, uh, that's all the questions. So I Fantastic. Um, yeah. I would like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. You can rate the show, you can leave us a review, all of those things uh, make a big difference to us. We don't have a marketing budget, so uh, we rely on word of mouth. So um, tell a friend, subscribe, rate, and review us. And uh, again, I guess I'll give out email addresses one more time. Nathan at foxlsat.com, Ben at strategyprep.com. If you got questions about stuff we talked about today, or if you have other potential topics for future shows, we would love to hear them. So thanks a lot for listening. Yeah, thank you. And I should add, Nathan, I wanted to just thank everyone for all the donations we've received. It's just been overwhelming. So. <laughs> yeah, keep them, keep them coming in. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. All right, take care, man. Mm, yep, see ya. Thanks.